Welcome to the Hypergen Founders Podcast, the show where we explore the minds behind the innovative companies. I'm your host, Kian. I'm your host, Alex. And each week, we'll dive into conversations with visionary founders. From garage startups to global enterprises, get ready for inspiration, insights, and the secrets behind their success. If you're curious about how these visionaries are turning their million and billion dollars ideas into reality, then this podcast is for you. Stay tuned for engaging discussions on technology, innovations, and leadership. This is the Founders Podcast. Let's begin. Welcome to the Founders Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Alex. And then we have Kien and our wonderful guest, Georgi Petrov, who's the ex-co-founder of SMS Bump that sold to Yotpo and current CEO and co-founder of NitroPack. And NitroPack helps websites achieve outstanding website speed optimization results. Georgi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Pleasure seeing you. Awesome. So just to kick things off, can you tell us the story behind your company and then why you chose that name, NitroPack? All right. That's a very good question. So... <laughs> Starting from 2013, we actually had someone who wanted to get optimized website in terms of speed. This was a topic we didn't know anything about, but at that time we were running a company called Tyson's Labs and it's basically an agency for e-commerce with its own products. And we basically wanted to build a solution for OpenCart, which at that point wanted just to be fixing the page speed problem and why the page speed problem existed in the first place just because we saw websites which are super rich in media and websites which have too many pages too many SKUs in the e-commerce sector so we were like okay let's actually see how can we help the visitors of this website experience experience a faster website so in 2013, actually, I remember it was July, we launched our first version of Nitro Pack for OpenCart, mm-hmm. and it was like instant success for us. And immediately, people start to realize that the page speed was like something that they need to care about. And at the same year, 2013, Google was releasing its page speed API version one. Basically, the same year, Google was penetrating the same category as well. So we integrated, we were the first solution on the market to integrate with Google PageSpeed uh, API. So since then, we're sticking with them and going side by side because PageSpeed is something that can be seen from different perspectives. But the way, when we saw how Google thinks about PageSpeed and specifically from the perspective of the visitor, this is exactly what our idea was, exactly matched instant synergy. And since that point, we just continued developing NitroPack as its own like uh, plugin. And what happened later is in 2019, we realized that PageSpeed actually is something that will stay and it's not a category that will just fade out. And we decided to actually share this uh, solution and uh, this success with every other platform. So we recreated the whole product as a SaaS and to be platform agnostic, we created an API and we created a bunch of other connectors. And this is where actually the current version of NitroPack started in the late December, 2019. Amazing. And as far as I know, before, when we talked initially, when you guys started, you're a B2B service, right? And then like a lot of things that you guys were doing evolved into products. What made you do that decision, switching from a service-based business to a SaaS-based model? 
Yeah, at that point, we already had products, but they were on license principles. So they were like, you buy the product, it's open source freemium, which means that we give you the source and you can use it. It's plug and play product and you get the license to use it. So we realized that doing one-off purchases is not scalable and we're going into a subscription-based economy where people are actually expecting you to deliver over time and they're expecting to have the new versions of your software being automatically available to them over time. And since we've been always focused from day one on the quality of service we provide, we decided that it's time to actually go into SaaS and make our service on subscription basis so we can keep up with the quality of service we want to give to our customers. Yeah, so that was the biggest decision factor. And of course, there were also technical benefits, things like deploying the whole tech on our site enabled us to do all the heavy lifting on the website optimizations that otherwise small website owners cannot afford to have. So deploying heavy media optim optimizers, deploying heavy image optimizers, deploying fonts optimizations, like running five, six different strategies of what optimizations would work best and doing multi-device support is something that can only happen on a cloud environment. So that's why we decided to take everything out, re-implemented, re re-pivot from the get-go on the cloud and offer all this uh, 10 times bigger power to the user as, as a, on a subscription basis as a SaaS service. Mm -hmm. All right. How did you like identify your target market? Then like, how did it evolve? Who did you start out initially with and who are you targeting mostly today and why? Yeah. So initially we started from like purely VSBs, very small businesses or individuals uh, who are just installing, but usually these are the same guys who are the innovators in our space and yeah and over time we started seeing also our offer our product grew we started seeing mid-market companies onboarding us and even some enterprises up to current date so yeah we definitely grow together with our customers and some of our biggest customers right now are with us since the very beginning for years yeah nice and then I guess there's so many other products that help optimize the speed of your website, make your website have a better SEO ranking. What makes Nitro Pack the best or one of the best solutions out there? Yeah, we tend to not use the word best because it's best for your use case. So while I can tell you what makes you a good fit, if that's your business fit, what makes it a good fit for your business. So Nitro Pack is very user focused is focused on the visitors so nitro pack will serve the right page for your right visitors on the right device on the right geography so this is what stands out why because this visitor is actually the one that we are trying to keep on your website from dropping off from bouncing and we want to make sure that these visitors continues browsing seamlessly across all the pages until the final goal you have designed for this visitor on your website this might be a checkout if you have uh, e-commerce operation, this might be an ad click. If you have a publishing website, this might be a sign up. This might be like gated content. It might be anything. You ultimately any website with online operation, they have a goal. And we make sure that the whole path, the whole journey of the visitor is seamless. So we're super focused on the visitor. 
That's why we actually embraced Core Web Vitals. We're the pioneers of using Core Web Vitals since Google is releasing because that's the only real user way to measure how the visitors experience your web page. Yeah, basically, for those who are not familiar, these are based of three Google metrics, which technically what they do is they monitor how your website visitors are experiencing your web pages. And whenever you have an issue, they will go in red and say, all right, you're not passing, for example, this Web Vitals, which is like, for example, LCP is one of the most popular core Web Vitals. It's called largest contentful paid. And this is basically the time to paint the most meaningful content on this page. Mm -hmm. Can you mention those three core Web Vitals like real fast? And I'll briefly define what they are actually. And yeah, so basically the LCP is the web battle that focus on the loading experience of uh, your visitors. And this is basically the metric that shows you how your visitors perceive the visible loading of the page. Now it's important to know the visible part and that's why it's largest contentful paint because the visitors perceive loading with their eyes. This is our also most important metric. If you go on our website and you check like on our service, like how your website is performing, we'll be talking about LCP because LCP is the visible loading. So why the visible loading matters so much? Because one website can load a bunch of things and they can all be part of the loading of the website. So it can be like analytics trackers, it can be different pixels, it can be JavaScript that do some operations on the back end. So it can be any kind of front-end business logic. So what we're going to do is we will keep this logic for you, but we will prior prioritize the visible loading. And in that sense, we basically improve the core web vitals. Of course, we'll do anything that can be optimized. We'll optimize images, we'll optimize fonts, we'll subset the fonts, we'll remove the new CSS and styles, we'll lazy load the images, the HTML, which is something that we're currently the only one doing in an automated way in the whole category. And we'll do a bunch of optimizations, which we have adapted only for this page of yours, which makes sense to be optimized in exactly this way. So we have a very personalized automatic approach in how we optimize every page. And that's all about the LCP, the first core vital. Then we have the other core vital, which is called FID, which is going to be replaced very soon by INP. And by the way, we have a webinar with Google coming soon next week. And yeah, this basically measures your interactivity of the website, how the user interacts with the website. If you click a button, does uh, something happens after you click the button? Does the button actually uh, lead you to somewhere? If you click a dropdown, does the dropdown folds in? Uh, if you interact the website, do you get, do you get a vis visible feedback? That's what the IMP interaction to next paint or the previous one FID, basically they have the same goal they measure. And what we do there is to basically uh, identify the points of your code where you produce this IMP and we will reframe or refactor these codes automatically so that they continue functioning and while the visitors still enjoying, still continue to enjoy the right click and getting the instant feedback that something is happening. So that's our goal here in this metric. So it's the interactivity. 
And the last metric is called COS, Community Layout Shift. It is all, all about the visual stability. So the, do you have any moving parts when your website loads, if you have COS? Because the customers or the visitors of yours, they don't want to have unexpected movements. Let's say you load a page and you just start reading the page and immediately an ad pops up and say, hey, I'm an ad. And it, it scrolls down the content. That's COS. You don't want to have this kind of like experience for your visitors because they basically lower their desire to continue browsing this website. That's the focus. And these three metrics is something we're super focused on and we're providing an automated solution. Amazing. And then now with the rise with ChatGPT or AI, how see the search engine experience changing? I know a lot of people theorizing Google will disappear. Maybe why people look at ChatGPT, like we're going to look at other like signals as well. Yeah. It's more of like a general question, which everyone is asking, but my personal opinion is the real product, which we're going to use a few years from now will be somewhere in between. So mm -hmm. obviously it's super expensive to, and it requires tons of resources to train on AI, to be super sharp and actually answering your questions. And we see that what Google is putting out is great for some cases, but just okay for other cases. So if you've seen the last release of Google, I think this is where we are getting in terms of how the search engines will be working in the future. So basically, when you start searching, basically you have the two options. You have the organic, like standard page-based results, and you're going to have the AI results as well. So they'll be complementing each other. This is what I believe we're going to see in the next few years being. And I don't think that one will necessarily take over another. And I don't think that they're like a perfect competition in a way that one is killing the other. Definitely we'll have both of them coexist for quite some time moving ahead. Amazing. It's really cool that you already sold the business, you're working on another business. How did you approach building out and developing Nitro Pack? And I'm also really interested to hear, based on also your previous exit, what are the things you did right? And what are the things I guess you wished you did that now maybe you're applying at Nitro Pack? It's a very good question. Basically moving from starting up a company and making this company a success and later having this company acquired, then starting a second one, which in our case is not exactly starting because we already had it started, but moving to a second one is something that comes, you have the good part and the bad part. So the good part is that you have with tons of experience, which already you've learned like tons of other things from the previous success how things worked and how you can apply them. And basically you're super focused and you don't waste time on anything that you would otherwise will be looking left or right. What should, should I do? We are much sharper now. We know what we want to do on the get-go. We had our defined goals. We know how to work with multiple stakeholders. So basically you come with tons of knowledge from what you have already built. But this one itself is sometimes not all, always that great because it's not a one-size-fits-all. And you want to basically, while you have the knowledge, you don't want this knowledge to make you comfortable enough to make you think that you know how to do things. So you still have to explore 
the world through the eyes of the new company and make sure you connect these products to the hearts of the customers of the new company. Because although they're both SaaS, although they're in a super similar model, although they both have usage, although they're both US focused in terms of where most of the market is, still there is a difference of how the customers perceive and what's important and what's not important in them. So we're super focused on few things with the new company. First is being close to our customers. Second is thinking ahead of time how this product should evolve in the next year and how do we see the web in general moving forward from a page speed perspective and performance perspective. So we are also super focused with partners and affiliates. We're super focused on making our internal decisions and employees sticking with our vision. And that's something that we know how to do it, but to some extent, but still to a big extent, we reinvent it and reinvent it again and again. So that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always amazing to talk about that because it's some people, when they sell their company, they're like, okay, I'm ready to retire, but not you. You're like, okay, I want to go to the next big thing. So I guess you're just always up for the challenge. Yeah, I've read many similar stories and it also has been a topic for me, Mihail, as well, obviously. And it's not always coming from us, but like from like people around us saying, hey guys, now you need to do this, you need to do that. Like after a successful exit, you tend to happen to have so many advisors around you telling you what to do. No one told us you need to start another company. That's something that was out of the list of anyone who was advising what to do next. We were offered like whatever you can imagine you were offered to do next, but not just start another company. And why? Because generally we as people, we tend to optimize for ourselves and uh, we tend to see where it's just easier and what it will make sense to do next as an easy step. We have work to do and we knew that we have Nitro and we want to make it a big success and we're super focused on actually making it a meaningful product. At the same time, we're humble enough to understand that we have other options too, but we still want to focus on the thing that actually gives us day by day satisfaction from what, what we do. That's a tough choice. At some point of time, like founders who sell their company, especially for amounts that are lucrative and give you options in life that you've never imagined you can have. In that case, it's more of like, I think it's, you should make a really clear mindset that money is just a tool and your only function here on our planet is to be useful to, to others. And if you get into this mindset, you will basically just continue working and enjoying your life and you will not be distracted by the amount of success which others tell you that you have. Not that so much internal thing for us, more what we see in the mirror, but we don't re- always believe this mirror. Yeah, and I think me and Ken can also get behind that because I feel for someone to get to that point, you need to struggle, you need to go through all that pain, all that growing. And I feel you naturally get attached to it and you realize that you actually enjoy the grind. And also 
we're not at that point, but we've met a lot of people that are successful. They've sold their businesses, but they're still doing something like whether it's a business, it's like something, there's a part of them that doesn't sleep. They want to keep grinding at the very least. They want to keep helping other people. It's something that really never dies. And it's always there, especially if you're like a founder. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Do you get motivated by those companies that become unicorns? Like you see all these other CEOs or founders, they're increasing their valuations and it can give us a sense of grace that we're all doing. Like back in the day where companies were saying how much they've raised, oh, we raised this amount, we raised this amount, but not many of them talk about like how much revenue they're making or how efficient they are. I personally, and I'm 100% can say the same for my partner and co-founder, we get motivated by good companies and good company is not necessarily a unicorn and good company is not necessarily the company who is taking the route of raising and raising and raising and following and focusing on growth through VC funding. I'm not saying it's bad, it's great. And we even, we did it as well. But in the last few years, especially during COVID, it got so overhyped, the whole idea of due to high valuations and everything, but the whole idea of being successful just because of the amount you raised went crazy through the roof. This is not something that we've ever been impressed with. We've been impressed by great NRRs by great MRR, by amazing uh, retention, by amazing teams, by amazing product, by in innovation. That's what we value the most. And we've been like witnessing so many companies raising on crazy valuations just because the funds were there and the multiples were crazy and the money was cheap. That's no longer the case post COVID, but still. Like it created a culture of success, which we don't necessarily are attracted to. And what we believe is you need to have a very good product, very good team and building this good product and team with the foundation of success. And then if you want, if you need VC money is great. Like at some point, take VC money, feel that growth. Put, put them into the new initiative in the sales organization, whatever you're building, you have a repetitive sales model, do it, but don't do it just because you need to put a stamp of success because of your race. And even nowadays, we've been like constantly attacked by different VCs. Hey, let me show you um, how beautiful the world will be if you raise from us and how things will happen and so on. And we continue speaking to many of them. They're very good advisors. Uh, they know pretty well the ecosystem, but um, it, our number one priority is uh, making a big company. And as long as we can do it with very little help or with some help on them, we'll be great. If we need the big help, we'll be great as well. Just it needs to be at the right moment where we have a very de-risked model of growing with VC money. We wouldn't take VC money just for the sake of taking and figuring out what to do with our company. Uh, that's not us. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like part of the problem is that all these companies, they're raising so much. And like you said, they pretty much don't have almost anything. It's just they're raising on some kind of hype or whatever. Those are the ones that are appearing like on all the PR. 
But then it's like those companies that are bootstrapped or that have raised little amounts, but they're actually like a great business. Like they're profitable. They have great customers and so on. They're not around the general public doesn't know them. So it's that hype. But once you look into it, especially now, like you said, when the money is drying up, you actually see what a good business is. And sometimes it's not like the companies that raise the most. It's the companies that they know their target market. They're profitable. And like you said, like they're a good product, they're a good service, and they have most of all, in my opinion, like an amazing team, which really makes the company. Exactly. And leadership as well. We need to appreciate the leadership. It's usually make or break for a company. It's like super amazing leadership who is leading the company like to the right. One of the most important tasks of the leadership is to basically visualize where the company will be in one, two, three years. So having this type of leadership and having a good fit on the market, on the reality, you just need the execution. Yeah. Awesome. And then what have been like some of the most significant challenges that you faced as a founder? It could be from SMS bump, but especially maybe with NitroPack. Yeah, so significant challenge. I can't say like one challenge. We've always been building businesses on iterations. So you go step by step and solve problem by problem. So obviously every day, every week, we have certain challenges. Like we've obviously, like we have challenges with hiring, with go-to-market, with products, with POG, with even things like finance and challenges are everywhere and they are changing over time. When you're a small company, your number one challenge. And when you're just building your product, is how to make the product market fit. How first to build the product, then put it on the market. How much is going to cost you, your time, your finance? how many people you need and actually put it on the market and see if it's going to be a fit. And most of the cases, it's not. In some of the cases, founders decide to do iterations and iterations and iterations, and then it becomes a fit. And this is us. This is how we actually ended up having a growing product on its own without salespeople, with very minimal marketing, and on a self-serve basis, started out of Bulgaria, where when you go outside, you don't meet your prospective customers. You don't meet your partners. You meet your family, your friends, but they're not the ones who are going to buy your product in our case. So this from one side is a very positive thing because it focuses you so much on like how the product should be better than the other products on the market that you actually end up just being better just by focusing on improving and iterations. And at one point you just start seeing the visitors, the users appreciating what you have built, start using it. And the moment you become useful to someone, you're already starting to get into the product market fit area. And then you get to a point where you have the product market fit and you need to think how you can expand this product market fit to be a fit for even bigger market, for more segments, for bigger audience, for different ecosystems and things like this. So you're expanding your product market fit. Then the competition picks up because obviously in order to be growing out on yourself, 
you have done something that others haven't done. So then the competition picks up and they start to copy you and do the same features and things like that. So then the feature game starts and you start to say, okay, they start to catch up and you need to continuously innovate in order to keep this growing leader position in the segment you're operating in. That's our story. And I'm going to pick up on a little thing you said. I love how you mentioned that, especially in Bulgaria, right? Pretty much a lot of people would say we're in the middle of nowhere because a lot of people, they start in the US, Canada, or let's say another like richer country, whatever. They can go out, meet their customers. Maybe they might already know them. So growing is much easier. And a lot of people, when they're in that situation, they think of it as a negative. But then for you, you said, okay, this actually means we can sit down. It's more quiet. We can focus on making an amazing product and just like, destroying the competition which i love i think that's a really amazing mindset to have and then for all the people that are like building their own b2b SaaS, when do you think you have a product market is it a certain revenue point you hit yeah there are different definitions across the board coming from different people from what product market fit is i can tell you from our perspective how we actually felt we have on product market fit. The first sell and the first door is something that you should be super focused on when you have your product out there. Why? Because you want to know who is buying it, why is buying it, why you, why not the others, and seeing if they're going to buy again and seeing who's going to buy the second, then the third. And when you're super focused on that, you tend to understand the information, why they're buying it, how they're going to use it, and how it's going to give them value. And if they stick with you for the next six months or even a year, and they continue using it, and in which exact use case they are finding value in your product, then is the time where you can say that you have a product market fit. And then now it's just a matter of scale. You need to find as many people from this type of people who just bought it, and scale it as big as possible. Then it's just a matter of scale. So that's how we define product market fit. That's the ideal scenario for me, but actually in reality, what happens as you start talking and seeing how the first users are using it, some of them start requesting a refund, and then you obviously know you have an issue. That's not a fit. And you, sh you should be lucky if these issues are one of these two types. First, you have a buggy product. And second, you have it's too expensive. If, if it's one of these reasons, this means that you have something to fix and you have something to work. So first about the, the buggy product. So obviously when the product is brand new and it's on the market, it will have bugs. It's inevitable. And they will use it in a ways that you haven't imagined. And so it won't work for them. So they will have bugs. Then you need your strong R&D team, which in Bulgaria, you can have that in a pretty affordable way compared to the US. You need this strong team, R&D team, to be proactive and go ahead and fix these bugs in the very beginning, 24-7. I mean, in the very beginning, it's super tough. Like you, need, you need the full attention of everyone. So there is no, I'm on holiday, I'll check it on Monday. There is no... Uh, I'll log it in the system. So you go and directly fight for it immediately. And when you fix the bug, the customer receiving a 
reply from you in the matter of hours, it's fixed, it now works for you, the perception of the product they're using skyrockets. And they'll go and write a positive review for you. They'll say, wow, yeah. this guy's so fast, they fixed it and so on. And then the second point about the pricing disappears because you better have a functional and working product that gives you value rather than think about how much it costs. Because if you've done an innovation, you have quite a flexibility how to price it. Okay, if you do a commodity product and you have like tons of competitors, a red market, you're much pressured by the pricing. But don't think about the pricing in case you have released something that is innovation on the market. In that case, the pricing is just how much you're willing to pay in terms from the perspective of the customer to solve this problem. It's not expensive. It's not cheap. It's that much. And that's how innovation should be priced. Yeah, and for the bugs, when I think about it, because we as an agency, we use a ton of tools and we've also felt the same way. If we have a bug and we're using a smaller product and the guys, they answer immediately, they fix it, we're actually much happier. So I feel people, they're not expecting to not have bugs. They're just happy when someone can answer, can figure out the problem and fix it as soon as possible. That's an amazing piece of advice right there. And then for pricing, I think you're right. Maybe you offer something at $100,000. Maybe it's a small business, like they can't afford it. Let's say there's a big healthcare company that for them, that's nothing. That's how much they pay. Let's say one of their thousands of employees and the problem that you're solving for them, maybe it's worth like millions of dollars. Let's say optimizing their website. So I think you're completely right. There's people that can pay almost any price. As long as the problem you're solving, it costs a lot more. Yeah, uh, I'll just build up a little bit more on that. While I said you can charge as much as you want, you need to factor in also the, the fact that you are, in that case, a self-serve product. If you have like CX organization or if you have sales or if you have very good support or people to handhold this to your customers or you have partner sales, standard sales and anything that will go as a service, then you can afford, of course, to offer higher price tag. But there is a certain limit where self-serve products exist together. And uh, if you go just above this limit, it's still high enough, the prices. But if you go above li this limit, the expectations are dramatically ch changed in the customer eyes that you'll be providing a solution and not a self-serve product. So that's how you think you can't go just and make up any price you want. So it yes. should be reasonable. <laughs> yeah, should be reasonable. You still have a lot of flexibility. It can go from tens to hundreds to thousands, but still it's, yeah, it should be <laughs> something that is in the, in the self-serve category. <laughs> you like mentioned that your team will take care of the bug, not on Monday, but right now. How do you find these people? Very hard. Yeah. The thing with talent is that uh, my assistant is giving kisses here, my kid. The thing with talent is always been a human issue and human issue. It's not something you can put on a formula, but still trying and working with different people. You tend to identify the ones that are with you in the mission to change what you want to change. So basically, and they tend to attach to this business. They attach to product. They like it. They love it. And you want these guys to 
breeds the product in a sense that if there's something wrong, that's them. And if there is something they built, that's theirs. Like, obviously there's like multiple ways to motivate these people and they're like more and more adopted in the recent years. Equity structures in terms of incentivizing and so on, but that's never works if the person does not actually loves what he's doing and it's not basically ready to make this product part of his life. These people who will not make it, who let's say will say I'm have a work-life balance, they are good for other things, but they're not good starters. So you want this specific type of personality in the very beginning who will be with you no matter what. And by saying with you, it would be like with the product mission and to build something better on the internet, not just with you as a person, of course. And that's it. It's tough to find such such people. There are probably 1% of the people like this, but sooner or later you identify someone and uh, he's pushing. And it's not always like just to believe. And it's, it's, of course, much more need to have the right skills. You need to have the right attitude in the product building. You shouldn't be having like a service provider or someone who just thinks that delivering a code is good enough. No, you need to deliver a product. That works. So it's a multifaceted type of problem. And you will know as a founder if that's the right guy from the very first 10 cases you had with him. Yeah. Do you think that it's harder currently to find these people compared to when you were in your previous company? Yeah, just from the perspective of time, given that years have passed. And the um, two things have changed mainly. First, the job market obviously is very different from what it was a few years ago, if you're looking to hire someone. Second, the understanding of what, let's say, a software developer or engineer or CTO position is, it evolved over time. It, It got more of a commodity thing and people who are coming from other companies to apply for this position are much on general level, of course, are much more or less experienced rather than they used to be when they were just a few companies in the past because they were dealing with real problems that they were scaling, they were solving customer issues, they were doing things and that actually you want to do for you as well. We see on the market many people who take relatively high-level positions and don't have a very critical understanding of, for example, certain technology, or they have never scaled a product. Okay, you might have been a CTO, but what did your product did? The majority of the work starts at the moment when you actually release the product. That's just how it is. Uh, it's not w- when you release it, then you're done. No, it doesn't work like that. That's actually when the work starts. Yeah, sorry. We've yeah. actually, there was the, the last thing you said, the work starts when the product is launched. We've never launched a product, but we've heard it so many times. Yeah, that's the reality. 
imagine that in your case, your website is the product. So you build a website, you put it online, you said, we're doing these services. So this is your product. And then the work starts. So then you actually start oh, yeah. to talk. Then like, like 99% of the work you're currently doing is not in the website you've built. So that's what I mean. And it's very similar with the self-serve product as well. It might not be like 99%, but then it might be 70% of the work is still outside of the product you've built. You need to communicate, you need to build new roadmap, new features, and take new versions and things like this. But what you have already built is there, it's already outside of it. You need to improve it. Yeah. From day yeah, one, I, you know that you need to improve. And I feel like we've seen it because we've used, let's say, products even for our own, let's say, cold email sending. Everything evolves one, two, three years down the line. You build something and it's totally something different because it evolves. You said from the user feedback, the UX, UI gets better. Now you have more developers. Now you can develop more features. So it definitely turns into something new. But just like that core idea. Especially yeah. when in your e-commerce market, like it evolved pretty quick. I mean, remember maybe seven years ago, they didn't have that many plugins or custom JavaScript stacks. And now companies are having more solutions and websites are heavier. You can tell more traffic, more analytics tools, more upselling tools. So there's a lot and it still evolves, especially with e-commerce. For in us in B2B cold email, it's not as quick as you guys sometimes. Yeah, that's very interesting to see even how you guys like maintain this. And as a final question, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs like looking to enter the B2B SaaS uh, market? So first would be basically identify product need. That's something that should be what you're waking up and what you're going to bed with. So you want to identify a way and an automated way, preferably fully automated way, how to solve a product need. And the product needs should not be necessarily something that your prospective users expect it exists. It just be, should be making their life easier. Of course, speaking about businesses, it's more or less the same base for them. Easier life means either cutting costs or making something that they've been able to achieve in a very hard way, like through multiple tools, you're basically offering them single tool and efficiency, boosting efficiency, cutting costs. These are like ways to show value in the B2B world the most popular ways and in the b2b world if you're going to be launching a product and especially if it's going to be product that's going to be in the smb segment the small and medium businesses which i would highly recommend because it's usually easier to penetrate and you don't need so many people on the sales sites to actually you don't need any to be honest to just test if it's a self-serve product so you can just go and my advice would be like, you can just go and build whatever you have as an idea, as lean as possible, as single featured as possible, so that you can prove the value that you believe in. And then if the people actually find it useful, the businesses, then you can expand with other features. So that's my advice. Always focus on 
the single point where which you believe you're improving in other sites business. So that's the advice. Just focus on that and launch it as soon as possible. Don't try to be perfect. Try to be 80% perfect. Like a good product today is 10 times better than a perfect product tomorrow. So try to release as soon as possible with something small, which just works. And then you build up on, on that, whatever you see the customers enjoying and requesting. Yeah, so don't make it perfect. Just make it good enough so that it works. I guess we call it the eight out of 10. That's an amazing advice right there. And I guess, Georgi, it was awesome having you here. So we'll have the links below for you guys to connect with Georgi. Also check out Nitro Pack. But yeah, great having you. My pleasure, guys. Nice seeing you. Thank you. Cool. Cool. All right. All right. Ciao. Ciao, Georgi.